Hello there, podcast listeners. I am back from a two-week vacation. Some of you who listen to the radio show might have noticed that I wasn't there. Went to Costa Rica. Had quite a bunch of adventures. It was quite a lot of doing stuff, as opposed to sitting around or going to museums or just people watching. Uh, nice people. Super sunburned, but... Uh, a good trip, just so you know. Uh, today's guest, Mr. Zero, or as he said, you can call me Zero or Z, but we've kind of settled on Zero, but I like Mr. Zero as he's usually credited as. Uh, from the band The Kings, Canada's The Kings. Super sweet guy, nice guy, interesting story. And I love that this is just another piece of the puzzle. To me, there are so many different experiences that bands go through. And this band had one huge hit, and what happened to them is could be typical of, of what happens to a band that has one huge hit, and here we are, you know, whatever, million years later. Uh, how do they deal with that? Some deal with it great, some don't. Uh, so I think his take on it is real interesting. Some interesting stuff, speaking of interesting, interesting stuff is coming up. Check WFMU.org slash Michael for the uh, list of upcomings. And, of course, also for the archives of stuff that's uh, that's happened, you can always listen. And I always want to point out that, because I listen to so many podcasts, that most podcasts start with a couple of minutes of commercials. Uh, the WFMU podcasts have zero commercials. Zero. Just press the button and they start. Don't take that for granted. I, I never do. Okay, Mr. Zero, here he is from the Kings. Enjoy.
There are the kings with This Beat Goes On, Switching to Glide. It is one of the most earwormy, catchy songs. I remember hearing that in high school and just uh, flipping out. There was nothing quite like it. Uh, joining me on the telephone is Zero from the band The Guitar Player and one of the main songwriters, one of the founders of the band. Does it ever, you ever get sick of hearing that song? Well, actually, no. We uh, I know that some bands, you know, don't even play their... Uh famous songs uh, we always just say well the, you know the stones still play satisfaction so why wouldn't we play this thing and it's certainly our best known piece that people love it so much um no i never get sick of hearing it or playing it and to tell you the truth when we hear it on the radio i crank it up and it's it's still <laughs> it still sounds great that's the that's the thing about that thing and uh, like there's no it doesn't sound dated it just sounds classic and timeless to me and and that's we're very proud of it. So, yeah, I listen to it, and I love it. Yeah. I completely agree with you. It sounds great every time. Turn it up. Why not? Uh, when you guys play it in your show these days, do you? is it the very, very last song? Is it an encore? Is it somewhere in the middle? Where do you put a song like that in a set? We usually put it near the end, and there's usually one or two after it like that might rock out a little more. Like We had another song on our first album called Partyitis. I don't know if you remember that one. but Yes, of uh, course. It, it's kind of a more up-tempo, it's faster, and so sometimes we we would go to that after that, uh, after playing Switching to Glide, so just to amp it up that much more. So, But it's usually near the end, and I know that, you know, it's one of the pitfalls, I guess, of, of having one song so much more well-known than the others, but where else are you going to put it, you know? <laughs> yeah. know? You mentioned partyitis. I was watching videos of the band. The band is sort of in nonstop party mode. It seems like you guys are moving, jumping. You know, this is a few years ago, but I mean, there's a nonstop energy that you guys are just running around crazy. Was it always that way? I mean, did, was that just a natural thing or did you guys sit in a diner one day and said, you know, I think we need to all move constantly? Well, I think that was the initial... Uh, when we started playing... We, we we played more sort of uh, prog rock, and we when we, the the goal of the band was always to be songwriters first. I think you know we never wanted to be a cover band, but as it turned out, the most we ever did was about fifty fifty covers. But even the covers that we did, we did our own stamp on them. I, I never learned a guitar solo note for note. I don't think I could. But Dave is such a great singer, and and we all just put a, a, the energy into it so that. When we did cover songs, our originals fit right in with them because it wasn't that much difference between the sound, if you understand what I'm saying, you know. So, and then as it, we started to get on bigger club stages and that, we started to put more into the energy aspect of it. And then at one point we were actually, you know, working on moves that we could do together in a dance hall where it had a big mirrors on the walls. And so we were choreographing little things kind of you know like zz top did for a while there with little moves and stuff so we were doing that but we always just felt like everybody could own their own energy and and go for it you know it wasn't okay like we have to be quiet now so that it's focused here it's like everybody could 
ham it up as much as possible. <laughs> Why not? You know. Yeah, it's very interesting because the four guys in the Kings were definitely four different types. Um, you know, almost like a cartoon uh, character. You know, there was different types of guys, uh, and yeah, you each had your own sort of personalities, a little bit like the Beatles, sort of. So there was a band called Whistle King, and some of the guys you had known since you were a, a kid, right? And then they had moved to the west part of Canada, and then you got together. But how, how long ago, what year did you first start playing music with any of these guys who ended up in the Kings? I played with our drummer in high school, I guess, and then he went, he left school He's a little few, couple of years older than me, so he left and then was out playing full time. And then Dave, our singer, went to the same high school as me, and he left. He was you know a couple of years older. He went was playing full time. This is back in the day when you could you know they're both in different bands that played bars six nights a week, you know, and he could rent a house for three hundred bucks and buy a car for three hundred bucks and. You know, those were the days back in the seventies, really. So this is the the mid seventies we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and so but and then. When we got together, um, I went out and lived in the West Coast in Vancouver, and then I met Sonny Keys, our keyboard player, and he and I started writing songs, and then we decided that, you know, I said, I know these are two guys from back home, and I didn't know whether they'd be into doing original music or not. I mean, that was, you know, that was something that we wanted to do original music, and so when we got together with these guys, it really, it was a fortunate thing for us that Dave turned out to be not only an incredible singer, but an incredible songwriter as well. So anyway, that was the, uh, that was the luck involved. You know, I didn't know that it was going to turn out to be, you know, such a, a songwriting powerhouse as it were, you know? Yeah. So this, so you guys formed this band whistle King and you've known some of these guys since you were a kid and this band plays originals, but also I, I guess you've learned a bunch of covers just so you can, you know, earn some money playing the bars of uh, Canada. So this would be the very late 70s, these kind of Whistle King years where you're kind of uh, perfecting your thing. Tell me what the scene was like. I mean, the idea of folks going out to see live music and there being tons of bars uh, with bands six nights a week, it just doesn't happen too much, not as much anymore. How, how many hours a night were you guys playing? How much money were you making? And uh, how much better did you get during that time? Well, uh, it was kind of like, you know, a time that is, is gone now for sure, because you could actually, much like the Beatles did, you could learn how to do this thing and, you know, make a few bucks doing it. You know, rents were cheap. I remember we played this place near here, and for six nights, I think, in, you know, we had to bring in the PA system and everything else and the four guys in the band to play six nights, four sets a night. I think we got $800 for the whole week for the whole band. Oh, wow. But the, and so by the time we paid for the PA system and everything, I think we got maybe 150 bucks each or something. But at that point in time, I was still living at home with my parents and you know, I felt like the richest guy in the, in the world. You know, I was playing music and making 150 bucks a week. What could be better than that? Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So did you guys improve rapidly? I mean, did that, that grind uh, totally sharpen your guys' skills? Yes, it, it very much did. I remember there was also this other place in Toronto. Where we got hooked up with this, this agent who turned into our manager. Gary Pring was his name. He passed away in the 90s. But he had this place up on Young Street near Young and Bloor, which is the main crossroads in Toronto, called the Young Station. And we played there 
again, uh, six nights a week, we did six sets a night in that place. And then three sets in the afternoon on Saturday and six that night. So I think it was 39 sets a week we did in there. <laughs> so you really get good at doing this. I mean, Dave and Max, our drummer, they were already playing full time. They were already good at this. Dave, Sonny and I were newbies to it. And so we had to learn fast to keep up with these other two guys. And, and, and fortunately we did. And then we won the, uh, there was a song, like a songwriting contest on one of the radio stations here, like a talent thing. And we won that and that helped get us more notice. And then we started getting more gigs. And then, and like I say, we were doing about half and half covers, but we, you know, during that time we would do Elvis Costello and, you know, uh, the cars, that kind of stuff. Uh, it was called New Wave at that point. And, and so we were covering some of those bands and sticking our own stuff in there too. And Sonny was singing more then. And, and it was, you know, we like you said earlier, you know, the energy level was really high. Am I right that Young Street has sort of a long history of being the this place? It's like where the guys, uh, where Ronnie Hawkins played forever and the guys in the band and Matt Lucas and just all these... Uh, just like a storied bunch of bars on the street. Is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah, you're, that's absolutely right. Uh, this was in a different sort of time, but some of those places were still there. And of course the band of Ronnie Hawkins had all moved on and everything, but yeah, that's the, that's where it was right along there. And it's still the main drag of, you know, the main street of Toronto. And I remember actually driving for, uh, I was going to go have lunch with Sonny, our keyboard player a few years ago. And, Right at that same intersection, I had the windows down. It was a nice day, and I heard switching to glide coming out of a store. You know, they have a speaker in the door of the window of the store or something. And I just turned it on. It was on Chum FM, which was the sort of Toronto radio station. I thought, geez, you know, you can't get a much more Toronto moment than this. Sitting at Young and Blue or listening to switching to glide, it was just a, <laughs> it was it, it was an awesome moment for me. I really, you know, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Well, tell me what makes. I mean, you guys are are Canadian. You're so Canadian to me. But I'm not sure what that means exactly. What 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 would be different about your band had you guys been you know born in Detroit or somewhere uh, just slightly south of where you are? What what is it? What makes you Canadian? Do you think? Well, I I don't know. I think that for us, I mean, it's it's sort of bred in the bone for sure. But you know, one of the greatest compliments, and you know, I hope that our Canadian friends don't take this the wrong way, but. One of the nicest things that people say to us is that we di- we we didn't think you were a Canadian band, <laughs> you know, and we've heard that many times, and that to us means that we have something more to offer than than just a, a Canadian perspective, and that that we're good enough to be in the U.S. and you know, where around the world, hopefully, but but the U.S. is where we always wanted to be. I mean, that's that's the the gold standard, you know. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so the story goes that while you guys were uh, re- recording, I guess you decided to record your own, your finance, your own stuff. Producer Bob Ezrin was in the same studio because he was he had worked there in the past. Whatever. He's just walking through. He hears you guys. He agrees to sort of mix the tracks. But then after listening to them, he sort of says, you know what? We should just start from scratch. And he threw that effort he gets you signed to Electra Records huge huge uh, label and this guy was just he, he, coming off 
Pink Floyd's The Wall. He had produced tons of people, Alice Cooper, all these records. And you guys kind of went like a slingshot. I mean, just from, you know, playing in these bars to being on Electra Records. I mean, not that you hadn't done your homework. Clearly, you guys had. But uh, I can imagine the the vibe must have been super, super exciting. Well, it really was. Uh, although, you know, you, you sort of just can't believe that it's happening in a way, you know. And I remember telling a buddy of mine, you know, like, you know, that there's no, yes, this is happening, but, you know, there's no guarantees. And so, uh, but, but, but I mean, at, you know, at that point, we'd already played hundreds of shows and had written dozens of songs and, you know, um, I like, I think when opportunity comes knocking, you better be ready. And so I think that in that particular case, we were, and yeah, and that, that was the thing. And then, you know, just having that segue of this beat goes on and switching to glide. That was, you know, that was the one I think. And so the story goes that when Bob took it to Electra in Los Angeles on La Cienega Boulevard, they're playing the song and the window was open. And the record executive guy, the A&R guy, Kenny Batiste was his name, he was looking out the window and there was kids dancing outside the window on the street. <laughs> and, and, and that was the omen. They went, you know, this song has got something magic about it. And so fortunately, Bob did a, a, a great service when he said, you know, this song is great, but it's not right. You need to fix it. And so, you know, the original demo is, is on the, uh, the internet and you can find it on Spotify or whatever. But it's a completely, and we talk about it in the documentary, but it's a completely different version that we had to rewrite to get it to, to, the, to, the, to the way that it is now, that the one that everybody loves so much. It was close, but it wasn't a home run. And then what Bob did to it, producing it and, and mixing it, that's what made it the home run. So ah. much, much of, many hats off to him, for sure. That's really interesting. So I was going to ask you, you know, what Bob brought to the thing, but but there it is, laid out there. Uh, there's a, a version I came across labeled the indie single version, which just is like, is that the demo that you guys made? Yep, that's that's the mo that's the one that Bob mixed, uh, and then said, and "Let's then, do this again." It's yeah, very interesting because it's almost there. You know, I mean, it's almost the the exact song that's now you know, embedded in our heads for eternity. But yeah, you can see that it just got shined up just enough to to make it this thing that will be around forever. Uh, I'm going to remind folks that I'm talking to Zero from the band The Kings, and information is at thekingsarehere.com. Uh, they've got a new record out. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But here we are. It's 1980, and uh, The Kings Are Here, your first album, comes out, produced by Bob Esbrin, the hottest guy on the planet. It's got this record that's got kids dancing in the street. Things are things are, are going well. And one of the things that you guys did is you got to tour with Bob Seger and Jeff Beck and the Beach Boys and Eric Clapton. And tell me about that. That's that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, we did do some of those shows, and sometimes the mix. You know, I'm sure everybody's been to shows where you go, "Why is this band on with this <laughs> band?" Because it's just not yeah. a, it's not a good fit. You know, so and like you said earlier, you know, when we, we were such an energetic band, and we all kind of had these, you know, different clothes that we were wearing and stuff. And so the the night of our first gig in the in 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 the United States was in Denver with Jeff Beck, you know, the guitar hero guy. And, and we came out, you know, dressed like the new wave village people or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> and so they started throwing stuff at us. I mean, it was a, it was a very memorable thing. And the crowd, uh, at one point, our lighting guy, you know, it's one of those times in the set where he, he, he tells the spotlights guy to shine the spotlights all over the arena. So we could see out in the crowd and there was, you know, 15,000 people giving us the finger in unison, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> and that's true. Cause we all, we all remember it. I've talked to everybody, including our lighting guy. And he said, Oh boy, you know, but uh, no, they really, they really didn't like us very much. And, and so that's when we started going back to sort of more jeans and t-shirts for playing those kinds of gigs. Hmm. Um, but most of the touring we did was, you know, club dates and that, um, you know, it's occasional bigger shows going on. Um, but we felt that we wanted to be, have our own stage and be our own, uh, masters of our own, you know, fate. And so we did our own thing as opposed to, you know, a lot of opening act things. That's interesting. I love hearing those stories about, uh, you know, people throwing stuff. I mean, that is just such a, that's just a, you know, a chapter in everybody's book, you know, the time that they opened for the wrong band or, or vice versa. Uh, you guys got to play on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Uh, just, I mean, quickly run me through that. I mean, he, does he even know you guys? Does he care? Is he a nice guy? Are they kind to you backstage? Is there a deli platter? What's that all about? Well, it was really great. Uh, you know, it was shot at the ABC studio in Hollywood there. And, you know, you go in and at that point, I think they did, uh, they do, they tape it like once a month and they do four shows or four or five shows in a day. And so that's when, you know, Mr. Clark was there for, you know, and so I think the other band on shooting the, the show that was on before us was we saw Casey and the sunshine band, they were on and then they finished that show. And then we were on with uh rock pile with Dave, Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe, I guess. Yeah. And, and so that was the other town. They did teacher, teacher and, I forget the other songs. Everybody gets two songs. And so that was the thing about our thing was that switching the glide of this beat goes on was a two song segue, but they said, well, you can only do one of them. So we played ah. switching the glide. Yeah. And, and, and then, so we were, the second song was going to be our second single called don't let me know, which is on the first album. But I remember the, you know, we were in the dressing or the uh, makeup, you know, with Dick Clark and uh, super nice guy, very professional, you know, just sort of asked us some stuff while we're sitting there relaxed. And that was kind of what he brought up in the little interview section, which, you know, is actually on YouTube. Now somebody released that or there's a whole bunch of them that you can find of all these young bands, like, you know, Loverboy or Blondie or whoever, their first time playing on bandstand. Some of the performances haven't been released. Ours have, has not, but the interview part is, and I mean, we're like deers in the headlights for God's <laughs> sakes. You know, that's what, uh, that's what I see when I look at that. It's like, you know, these guys are clueless, but <laughs> all of a sudden they're st stuck in this, you know, this, and, and a lot of the bands seem like that. So it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. It's always interesting. Dick sort of comes along and says, how are you, sir? And shakes everyone's hand and sort of asks a couple of questions and you move on. It's also interesting, of course, cause your, your lip syncing, which is, uh, just horrible, you know, but that's how it was done uh, back then. So the Kings are here. Your debut album goes gold in Canada, and I believe, if I got it right, uh, Switching to Glide, Beat Goes On, goes to number 43 on the Billboard Hot 100. And I can only think, you know, that Electra blew it, right? There's How does this song not at least go top 40? Uh, 
I mean, I don't think there's any band who thinks their record label did enough, but I mean, did they blow it in your mind or am I missing something? Well, I think that what happened with us was that the initial release was Switching to Glide just on its own. And then it sort of didn't get much traction. And then some of the people at the label and the promo department and some of the, the reps around the country and ourselves said, you know, it's the segue that's got the magic, not just the one song, because it's the whole thing. And, and that is, so they pressured the, the company, the elector to put it out. And, and when they did, that's when the promo department really got behind it. And that's when the, uh, the phones started to ring at radio stations when it came on and it just yeah. grabbed people's, it, yeah, it, it just grabbed people's attention. And so that was the, so what happened was that it started breaking at the, with a relentless, you know, promotion that they were trying to put on it, but it broke at different parts of the country at different times. And so I think that is the reason why it didn't climb as high as maybe it should have. It was on there a long time, like 24 or five weeks. I think it was on the billboard hot 100, but it just didn't it break all at once. And of course it was just in a year or so before MTV hit and the video age and all that, which was kind of bad timing for us. I think because we were a very visual band, mm. um, and would have fit right in with it. But, but also on the other hand, you know, a lot of the videos from them are really horrible. So, um, <laughs> I think anyway, and so the video that we made for this beat goes on switching to glide a few years ago, it's, it's, it's an incredible video that, uh, I think I'm so happy that we have it. It'll stand the test of time. It's, it's approaching three and a half million plays now. I mean, it gets played 15 or 20,000 times a week and it's, uh, you know, it's a beautiful thing. So you got to take the good with the bad in this world, I think, you know, and we're, we feel very fortunate uh, that how many bands even get a shot at putting out a single on a major label and actually having a hit, you know? So, I mean, it's a bona fide hit. Uh, It may not have, it may not have reached the top 40, you know, in that line of demarcation, but, it got awfully close, and I actually one day put a thing on our Facebook page about other songs that didn't necessarily get that high in the chart because I was reading uh, Neil Diamond's autobiography, and I was reading that one a few years ago, and it said his first single, Solitary Man, only got to like 65 or something on the Hot 100. And I went, you know, wow, you know, I love that song. <laughs> and then I started looking at like all these bands like ACDC and, uh, you know, uh, that put out singles that we all know that are huge hits that never made it into the top 40. So we're not alone in that way. I find it interesting that you never know. There are definitely songs that went higher than, than that song that no one remembers. Now, some songs have longer legs. Uh, and this one definitely did, including, you know, like you said, it kind of was a song that was slow to, to spread it, you know, in the eighties, the song, the late eighties, there was kind of a revival of the song. Some radio stations picked up on it again, but am I right? By that time, it was completely out of print. We had just associated that we were, you know, with the label after 82 or three or something. And, uh, so yeah, it, it, before CDs and the internet and all that came along, copies of the vinyl uh, were hard to find, you know, with record collectors and all that. And they were going for 50, 60, 70 dollars. Whoa. That's you crazy. know, cuz cuz we that's heard amazing. about that. Yeah. So you guys made your second record again with Bob Ezrin uh called Amazon Beach and then a um 
uh, EP called RCP, which has a holiday uh, hit on it, especially huge in uh, Canada. One of those things that gets played every year called This Christmas. And, and then you don't sort of hear about the band, uh, at least on record, until 93. Did the band break up at that point, or did you just... What, what happened? We have never stopped doing it. I know that, uh, you know, there was periods of relative inactivity just due to the nature of the business. And, but Dave and I, uh, our drummer left, Max left in 82 or three around there. And after that we had, you know, many drummers like almost spinal tappy and if you will, but, uh, we always believed in what we're doing and, you know, still do. And so we didn't see, and I really believe that you can't let the music biz determine your love of music and your ability to create it because, you know, it'll eat you up and the negativity and the rejection and all that. So you've got to just believe in yourself and love creating music, you know, and uh, I think that, you know, for whatever reason that we're pretty good at it. And, you know, um, I believe in what we're doing. We all still do. And so whether or not we get rich doing it or whatever, I mean, the comments that, that we get from our fans, you know, from Facebook or from the video on YouTube, I mean, people say, you know, the nicest things. And so, um, you know, that is, if, if that's the reward, then that has got to be good enough because people have just, I mean, it changed, people just tell us that it changed their life and that when they're unhappy, they play it and they feel better and all this kind of stuff that you cannot put a money value on but you can put an emotional value on. And so I think that is, it's an amazing thing. And it's, I'm sure that, you know, every, you know, Bon Jovi and everybody gets that every day of their lives, but you know, for a bunch of guys from Oakville, Ontario, I think that it's, it's, it's very gratifying and, and, yeah. and we appreciate. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. I've, I'm so, not everyone feels that way. Some, some folks I talk to, are real bitter or you know interestingly something that happens often is i'll talk to somebody and then after we stop recording they'll tell me the real deal you know which is like how angry they are you know and uh it doesn't sound like that's uh the situation with you zero it sounds like you're you're but i mean i do assume that you guys i and i don't want to get too deep in like your bank statement but i assume when you make a, a major label record with electra even a hit record like yours, uh, you probably never make any money past the advance. Is I mean, is that the case? Well, that's absolutely true, and uh, and so it's unbelievable. Well, it is. You know, um, I mean, you know, we got a statement near the end of it all, and uh, you know, how many hundreds of thousand dollars is that we owe them? <laughs> so uh, you know. So. so this brings us to 2019, right? We're talking about just about 40 years since the band started. Uh, you guys have a new release out, and it is, of course, a two-song segue, Circle of Friends and Man That I Am. And it definitely has a song, a feeling kind of reminiscent of Switching to Glide, uh, Beat Goes On. I assume that was on purpose, right? Yeah, it. Uh, it's actually uh, not a new song, but it was a song that, you know, we did, and we had this demo. I mean, that's one of the things we've been doing lately is, you know, we have so many songs that were never recorded properly, you know, because studio time was expensive back then. 
but there were some demos and even, uh, even a couple of things were just on live tapes that we used to tape our shows. But so once you, uh, you know, you go back in the uh, archives and the, uh, you start going, Oh, actually that was pretty good. You know? So uh, in this case, it was one of the, oh, yeah, that was, that was pretty good. That segue, even though before we started chipping away at it, it was about seven minutes long, you know, it was like stupid. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so what we were able to get in there and cut it down to like five and a half. And then, you know, people are going, well, I don't, some radio's never going to play it. You know, you're not on a major label. So then we got out the really sharp scissors and got it down to about four minutes, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's got the same vibe and, and, and it was great because last year I had Bob Ezrin's email address and I just thought, you know, I don't know if he'd be interested in mixing this thing. But I thought, you know, like we can produce ourselves, I think, to a pretty high standard and, and get it really close. But if you want to make it sound like a real record, the mixing is very important. And that's what these guys do so well, these major producers. And so I sent him an email and it just said, you know, Bob, we have a new song like to get somebody good to mix it. What do you think? And literally 20 minutes later, sure sounds like the Kings to me. I'm in, you know, I got the email back. So that's great. We worked out, we worked out an arrangement with Bob and went down to his studio in Nashville uh, last year. And, you know, there's some rough mixes floating back and forth, but we went down for the final and, and I think Bob did a great job on it. You know, I think that, you know, he's, uh, he still has, uh, those ears and the tricks and the, the ability to bring things in and out. It's not just, you know, sort of balls to the wall all the time in his mixes. There's subtleties in there and, and that's what he brought to the table. And, uh, we're, we're, we're really happy that, you know, to renew, to renew our relationship with him and also to, that he did such a great job on it because we're, we're really happy with it. Yeah, uh, folks can hear it. We're going to hear it in just a second uh, this morning, but uh, folks can check out The Kings Are Here, your website for uh, all kinds of information about the band, all kinds of links, all kinds of pictures and videos, and of course uh, can grab a copy of this uh, segue, a two-song segue. I guess I was going to say medley, but segue seems to sort of be the the right word for The Kings. Uh, so you, how does time change a band's reputation? Are you guys, especially in Canada, are you looked at? at as elder statesmen now no I, I i don't think so i don't think we get any respect it's a real you know rodney dangerfield kind of thing up here or in general but the people that know us uh and you know and love us and they're very you know there really are some true believers out there and that is i think the things that the thing that keeps us going more than anything else is you know we think they're geniuses for thinking we're so great. So they, they you, know. <laughs> you know, the catalog is much deeper than just a one hit song, but yes, you, you do sort of get into this trap when you have one song that is so, yeah, that's how we started uh, one song so much uh, more well-known than the other. So I do urge folks to sort of check out the, the deeper, deeper catalog of the Kings. But I, to me, I love it that the fact that, you know, 
you say you don't get any respect, but it's not going to stop you or slow you down at all, is what it sounds like to me. You guys are just going to keep making records, uh, keep playing energetic live shows until you can't anymore. Is that right? Well, that's that's how I feel about it. I'm, I'm, Dave feels the same way. I think that you know, our uh, going forward, right at this point in time, we have about seventy songs on Spotify and all those other platforms. Um, from the earliest days to the latest. And so, uh, you know, I always say to people, you know, if, if you think switching to glide is so great, don't you think we might have something else that's pretty good, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's an iconic thing and it's one of our best, but there's other great stuff in there too. And if, and, you know, and I, I hope people take the time to check it out and we get, you know, we get, you know, comments from people that have turned their kids onto our music and that. So why be so negative about it? You know, why not just, you know, go with it and try to just keep going. Interesting. Uh, we're going to hear now Circle of Friends, Man That I Am. Folks can check out The Kings at thekingsarehere.com and uh, get in touch with Zero or see where they're playing or uh, pick up some of that back catalog, including some, uh, there's some demos and some real old live stuff and uh, all kinds of stuff uh, over at The Kings Are Here. Thanks for telling us your story. I, I find it fascinating and uh, I, I, your attitude is amazing. Well, Michael, I really appreciate your uh, taking the time and uh, giving us this platform to to tell our story with your listeners down there. And, you know, I, I, I hope they do check us out because there is, uh, like I said, I think there's four and a half hours of King's music on there now. <laughs> so if you're going on a road trip, there's one to have, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Every 